This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. We all, I think, need to just plan for our future and I know there's a lot of discussions as people reach retirement age about financial planning and making sure that you've got money for retirement but actually social connections are really really important hello and welcome to the live long and master aging podcast we call it llama i'm peter bowes this is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity this is another episode from the ted med conference held recently in la quinta in California. Now, living a long and healthy life is about much more than eating properly, exercising, getting enough sleep. It's about being connected, connected to another human being. Isolation and loneliness are both growing problems. They can increase premature death rates by up to 30%. Some studies show us loneliness can be more harmful than smoking cigarettes. Difficult to believe, but again, studies have shown that loneliness can be more harmful than smoking cigarettes. It's also linked to higher incidences of dementia. One study reports a doubled risk of Alzheimer's disease in lonely people compared with those who were not lonely. Well, joining me to talk about this is Sophie Andrews, Chief Executive of The Silver Line. Sophie, welcome to the Lama Podcast. Hi, thank you. It's good to hear a familiar accent as well, here in the <laughs> California desert. <laughs> What is Silverline? So Silverline is a, a UK national charity. We've been around since 2013. And a simple way to describe it is a, almost like a child line for, for older people. But a 24-hour line where people can ring up for information, advice, a friendly chat. They might want to report abuse. They might be feeling quite desperate and suicidal. But it's just a, an easy access point for people to ring at any time and tell us how they're feeling. And how did you get into that? Um, it, well, we launched it back in 2012. We actually ran a pilot for a few months and it came about because we realised there was a whole stigma talking about loneliness, particularly older generation, a stiffer lip on a generation who don't want to bother family and friends, maybe have family and just don't want to burden them with how they're feeling, caregivers who perhaps feel very isolated. So we ran a pilot for about a year to see if we were needed and because there was such huge demand... Um, we then set up in 2013. We're going to talk in much more detail about that. I'd like to talk about your journey a little mm-hmm. bit and, and your story. Mm-hmm. And it's a tough story to tell, isn't it? You were involved in the Samaritans. Can you explain how you got there? And uh, I know it's it's a long story and it's a difficult story to tell. But uh, what, what brought you to that point? Okay, well, I Samaritans, are, again, is a UK helpline for, for people who are desperate and suicidal. And as a child, I was experiencing, I was being abused by my father uh, for many years, um, and I was very desperate. So I found the sort of number for Samaritans as a child. And at that point, I really didn't want to live another day. I was just getting through every 24 hours. And what I found was by talking to Samaritans, I just had someone alongside me who I was still in control of what was happening. I didn't feel out of control, but someone who could sit alongside me and give me that really valuable support. So I guess because of that... um, when I finally got myself straightened out a bit and I was no longer in that abusive situation I became a volunteer myself for Samaritans which I think quite often happens when people are helped by an organisation they want to go back and pay back 
which is what I did. And this was abuse that went on for a long period of time? Mm, it went on from when I was 12 up until about 16, 17. So, yeah, I think it's um, in many situations when people are in abusive situations, you know, it, it's easy as an outsider to say, why didn't you tell anybody? Why didn't you report it? When it's a loved one, when it's your, your father, as an example... I was afraid of losing my father. My mother had walked out, so I was living alone with my father. And he had quite a big control over me. And I think someone said to me in later life that when everything that is good good in your life and everything that is bad is one person, how do you separate the two? And actually, reporting that abuse may have meant I would have lost him and lost the love that I thought he was giving me. I know it's all distorted because there wasn't much love. <laughs> I can say it's difficult to get your head around a scenario where you're afraid of essentially losing the abuser mm. in yeah. your life. Well, my dad said to me, um, I was actually adopted as a child, so these are my adopted parents. Um, but after my mother left, uh, my adoptive father said, you were adopted, so your natural parents gave you away. And now, you know, your mother's left, so I will never leave you, I'll always be here. And actually, as a child, when you hear, I'll, you know, everyone rejects you, but I'll be here for you. It's, um, well, I don't know, I, I wouldn't have reported it in a million years. And during those years of abuse, was it a, a case of living day to day? Mm, definitely. At some points, living hour to hour. And particularly, there was a period where every morning I would wake up and think, um, you know, I'd just be so upset that I was seeing another day and that I hadn't died. My father could have killed me or I, or I felt like I, I wanted to kill myself. And I think the scariest thing, actually, even given the abuse I was experiencing... I was afraid of myself because I was self-harming. I was taking tablets, I was drinking a lot. It's very hard to get away from yourself. The, the biggest fear, I think, is... Or having that, being scared of your, of your own actions is a really terrifying place to be. And this was, obviously, physical abuse, sexual abuse? Mm -hmm. Yes, both, yeah. And you say you were doing harm to yourself. Was that with the goal at the time of taking your own life? No, it was quite the opposite. It was about taking some control. So I accidentally cut myself one day in the kitchen and just remember feeling a huge sense of relief. A tin opener actually cut my hand. And then after that, I felt everything in my head was exploding and I felt by cutting myself, I was just releasing all that pain that was in my head and it, it became a coping mechanism. And I used to self-harm every day. And I look back now and think, ironically, probably if I hadn't self-harmed, I would have killed myself because it was my way of getting through each day. And in those days, we're talking 1980s, I think people understand it better now, but um, if I did go to hospital because I needed stitches because I'd gone too far, the hospital staff would, would say, um, for, for example, if I'd cut my arms, they'd say, you know, you're not going to kill yourself cutting your arms. Um, you need to have cut your wrists, why, you know, almost like you're attention-seeking, why have you cut your arms? And I'd, inside I'd be screaming out thinking, I wasn't actually trying to kill myself. <laughs> you were <laughs> trying to screaming stay alive. and thinking, you, yeah. you don't get it, you exactly. don't understand me. People understand it more now. But. And was that, that lack of understanding, that lack of empathy, did that add to your problems? Um, well, it did, because I was on such a slippery slope and feeling that I was worthless. So, you know, someone in, in the emergency room at the hospital not taking me seriously or dismissing me or, or saying we have far more serious people here than you, all it does is just give another... It just reinforces that you're not really very valuable. Instead of actually thinking, well, why would... A 14-year-old be here needing stitches. So how long did it go on for, and what before you call the Samaritans, and, and what actually prompted you to take that action? I was being abused for over a year before I'd, I'd called Samaritans. I wasn't even aware that they existed. I was in a, in a phone box in London, 
and actually saw a card for Samaritans when I was in, in the phone box and, and called them. Hung up, actually. I didn't speak to them the first time and rang several times and hung up because I was quite scared that maybe they'd call the police or they'd get the authorities involved. So even though they advertised as a safe, confidential place, I was I was pretty scared in the beginning. But um, eventually I did speak to somebody there and then from there had incredible support really over a number of years and the person who answered the call that first conversation you had Mm -hmm. how did that make you feel well the the volunteer was called Pam and she was wonderful um I just for the first time felt that someone was there for me I was still in control but they they were just going to go at my pace I think that was so important but just this huge amount of warmth and love really that Sounds odd to say over the phone, but I just felt it and, and knew she really was caring for me. It doesn't really sound odd to me. I suppose you can you can appreciate that for someone who has felt that people weren't listening mm. to you mm-hmm. and, or didn't understand what was happening, a friendly voice, albeit mm. on the phone, you, you, I can imagine how that would have been mm. helpful. And, and clearly it was very helpful to you. So what happened next? Obviously that was just the beginning mm. of a, the next mm. phase of your life. Yeah, I mean, Samaritans were a, a crutch for me over over many years. I think by the time I got to 16, I was um, you know, self-harming prolifically. I was taking lots of tablets. I was drinking, I mean, all the alarm bells, really. Everything that should have been picked up on. And this um, continued after your first call, so it yeah. doesn't just end with the first call. No, no. It's I, a gradual yeah. process. And talking to lots of different people as well. So Pam was brilliant and, and she encouraged me to call back. But I think what was quite important was it was a 24-hour service. So, you know, at four in the morning, I had somewhere where I could call if I needed to. So, yeah, a very safe place, 24 hours. And when did you get to a point where you felt that you had moved on from that part of your life? Was, was it simply a gradual process or was there a, a day, a time when you thought, OK, I can finally put this behind me? Yeah, I don't think I couldn't define the day or time, I guess, building self-confidence. Well, I lost my self-confidence over a number of years, so building it took a number of years to get it back. And people, when I had talked about what was happening to me and I was out of the abusive situation, people always used to say, it wasn't your fault, you know. And I'd always say yes, but I didn't in my heart believe it. And I think over a number of years, I did start to believe in myself a bit more, which in turn meant that I believed that it wasn't my fault. But people just saying it's not your fault. Mm. (laughs) I said yes, just because that's what they wanted to hear. But I I didn't believe it for a long while. It takes many years to get screwed up and it takes many years to get fixed. And uh, I don't know if anyone's ever 100% fixed anyway. Mm. What happened to your father? Well, he, he wasn't prosecuted. Yeah, he got away with it, basically. And the police investigated and it was a it was a real difficult time because the police interviewed me on my own without a social worker or without any support. A male police officer interviewed me on my own and he actually started the interview with, I met your father this morning, he seems like a nice chap, so let's stop this right now. But how this is the context of the 1980s, this would never happen now. Right, but how did that make you feel? Well, just that... He must have it, had that sinking feeling it was, yeah. from those first few words. Yeah, exactly, that I was just going back home to the same abusive situation. But things have moved on. I've had an apology from the police since. But uh, Oh, have you? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's but something. It is, yeah. 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 So you, um, you moved on with your life mm-hmm. and you ended up working with the Samaritans. Yeah, so I became, um, at 21, I contacted Samaritans again to apply to be a volunteer. So at that point, I thought, I've got my head screwed on and hopefully I can give something back. Um, and I felt a huge privilege, actually, when I was accepted by Samaritans to be a volunteer. I'd thought the fact I'd called them meant I probably wouldn't be allowed in, but I was. And 
I volunteered for Samaritans for 25 years as part of my paying back for all those hours they listened to me. I did end up as, as the national chair of the organisation. So in 2008, they asked me to lead the organisation and there's 22,000 volunteers in the UK. So that was just, was so, oh, I was so shocked. It was such a huge privilege to be voted as, as the sort of elected chairman of the whole organisation. And to have gone from that caller in the phone box to, to running the place was really remarkable. But I've just felt very, well, I still feel very proud that I was put in that position. And of course, you will have dealt with many, many callers mm. uh, with a vast range of problems, mm-hmm. people wanting to take their own lives, maybe others mm. that are depressed but are not at that brink of mm. taking their own lives. Mm. And clearly for, for many, many different reasons, for, for mm. abusive reasons, mm. I guess addiction reasons, mm-hmm. uh, all, all, all sorts of things. Over the years, have you noticed the nature of the calls changing or is it pretty much the same now as it was when maybe you were calling mm. the Samaritans? Uh, problems are problems and the, the times that we live in haven't changed things? Yeah, I think so. I think when I first started as a volunteer and, and the calls now, they are pretty much the same. I think maybe there's different ways to access the service now. So younger people are probably more likely to text message rather than, and particularly young boys, rather than picking up the phone and ringing, would more likely to email or send a text mm. message. So I think... Samaritans are probably reaching more people because they've uh, they've changed the way that you can access. But fundamentally, the problems are, are still the same. And there's a huge stigma talking about wanting to take your own life. And uh, for some people, it's a relief to just talk about the fact that that's how they're feeling. Because where can you go with that if you tell family members, you know, the burden that people maybe feel that they're putting onto their family by sharing that with family members? It can detract from the person who's feeling suicidal because you, you're automatically then saying... You're reassuring other people and don't worry, I won't do it, rather than actually talking about how you feel. So I think having somewhere safe to talk about how you're feeling can automatically just relieve you. And for some people, you know, you you hear very harrowing stories. So um, I remember speaking to a lady once and, you know, she was an older person herself, but um, she had no family. Her husband had died recently. They'd been married for 65 years. She just had a terminal diagnosis and had a few months to live. And, And she was saying to me, I have no family. I've lost my soulmate. I've got a few months to live. I just want to take all my tablets. Well, quite honestly, I can I could understand why she was saying that. So it's not about coming out with answers and saying, you know, you don't want to do that. It's about saying, I totally. If I was in your shoes, I totally understand why you feel like that. And that's not encouraging someone, but that's just saying, I get it and I understand why you feel like that. And you can hear the relief in people's voices that not someone alone, understands someone why that I feel like it. this. Right. Yeah, yeah. But. Uh, Presumably your role is to to stop them from actually taking that ultimate action. Mm-hmm. So how do you, for someone or with someone that you empathise with, mm-hmm. that you, you really understand how they're feeling, mm-hmm. what do you say to them? Well, I think it is about choice. So I suppose it comes back to capacity. So if somebody's on the phone and maybe they're drunk or maybe there's a, you know, mentally they haven't got the capacity to make a decision... Samaritans would, if they knew where the person was and, and who there was, they would they would intervene. But for the most part, Samaritans don't know who the caller is um, and don't know where they're calling from. And there's, there's that element of control there. So actually, in terms of the caller still has the control. So they would always encourage, or Samaritans would always encourage people to get help. But ultimately, on some calls, people do want someone to be with them while they're taking their tablets. And it doesn't happen every day, but that's another function of Samaritans, really, to be with people. One of the things we on this podcast talk Mm. about is living a long Mm. and hopefully healthy Mm. life and how people aspire 
to do that. And I ask people, do you think about that? Mm -hmm. How do you live your life to perhaps ensure that you can live a long, healthy Mm -hmm. life? With your background and your experience, it puts a whole new perspective on on that question for Mm -hmm. someone personally who wanted to take Mm -hmm. their Mm -hmm. own life Mm -hmm. and talking to many, many people over the years who don't want to see tomorrow. Mm. Or maybe they do want to see tomorrow, but Mm. they can't envisage a scenario where they can just move on. They Mm. they, they can't face up to seeing Mm. tomorrow. So I'm curious from your perspective, how your thoughts on that question have changed over the years. Clearly, Mm. you're in a much better place Mm. now than Mm. you were when you were much younger. Mm. So how do you look forward with your own life? Well, I mean, interestingly, when as a volunteer at Samaritans, one thing one question I've asked from time to time with people who've been very suicidal, maybe taking tablets, is do you want to be dead forever or do you want to be dead for now? Because actually that that tells you a lot about how bad is it in terms of... Is, can, can you even see a glimpse of a, of a light at the end of this tunnel or, or is this just a black tunnel that you can't get out of? I think um, in terms of... I did live my life day to day. Obviously, I'm... Well, not obviously, I'm now in a position where I, I do look much further ahead. But um, we all, I think need to just plan for our future and I know there's a lot of discussions as people reach retirement age about financial planning and making sure that you know you've you've got money for retirement but actually social connections are really really important how often do any of us um, have conversation when we're we're busy working you know in in an average week how many conversations do you have that are not work related with people who are not connected to your work because actually if 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 90% of your conversations are about work with people from work that means when you retire that you're at risk really so I would hope that I would plan for that in terms of making sure I've got good people around me and uh, investing in those relationships. I think it's really important. And perhaps also highlighting the importance of mixing with people from different generations Mm. and not exclusively if you're an older person being only with people Mm. of your generation Mm. because they will sadly die and they might die before you. Yeah. And where will that leave you as an individual? I think what we find at Silverline, particularly with the men that we support, again, the older, the older of the older generation, so the over 80-year-old men, for instance, that we support in the UK, maybe have been more traditional relationships where they've worked and the wife has, has been at home. And perhaps their relationships have been work-orientated and the wife has built up the social connections. So actually after retirement, if, if the wife dies before them quite often the social connections have gone, the work connections have gone, and men can be particularly isolated, at risk, and less likely to pick up the phone. So I think you're right. I think it's about having that broad broad mix of people in your life. Um, but really, there's a, there's a whole stigma talking about loneliness. So I think just even talking about it is a starting point. It is, and, mm. and you're right. People, I think there's a certain embarrassment about it there's Mm. a a shame factor that Mm. you're lonely so why am I lonely people don't like me or Mm. yeah Mm. am I difficult to get on with or Mm. don't I make the effort to get out and see people Mm. I suppose there's that stigma that people need to get over well loneliness cuts across all demographics so uh, it's not about how big your bank balance is or it's not about your background it's not about your education it cuts across cuts, cuts across everything um and there is a stigma talking about it. I think um, how often do any of us really knock the door of a neighbour and say, how are you? Um, the digital world drives us towards, um, I've been guilty of it, you know, sending a text message to an elderly relative saying, are you OK? Because I'm busy. Uh, that reassures me when they text back and say yes. But if that stopped me calling on them or picking up the phone, then we're going backwards. So I think we have to be really sort of wary of um, 
making sure technology doesn't become about reassuring the younger person. Yeah, social yeah. media isn't always that, is it? <laughs> no, exactly. And and Facebook and the like, where people have got twenty thousand friends. Actually, how many are they? How many of these people would they know if they they met in the streets? So. Yeah, I and mean, we could delve into that in a <laughs> yeah. deep way, couldn't we? With <laughs> Facebook, mm. other social platforms. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's not just the the looking at the numbers mm. and thinking. Well, what's wrong with me? Because I haven't got those numbers. Mm. Uh, there's the the envy factor. There's mm. the mm-hmm. again, it's uh, almost like an embarrassment that uh, I'm not part of the party. I'm not mm. part of the club, mm. and um, it's difficult to see really what is changing there mm. as, as social media explodes. And I think there are certain generations who probably haven't got into social media as much as, as mm-hmm. people in their teens and 20s mm-hmm. and probably never will. Mm. But I think there's, let's say, people in middle age now mm-hmm. are grappling with it. Yeah. Do I go in that direction or, or don't mm. I? And I think mm. oftentimes the, the sensible question, answer might be, well, well don't. Mm. It's mm-hmm. not always going to be a good thing for no. you. And I think that simple human connection, we're all you know internet shopping etc etc you know potentially you could stay in your home and never come out of it again and uh, and order stuff online and never actually have those social connections so it's really important that we still do that and you know there, there is something about going to the supermarket and going on the bus and having people who go out every day you know in the UK and maybe go on the bus every day to get their shopping and someone might say to them why do you do that why don't you order online or why don't you buy a week's worth of shopping well actually the reason they're out on the bus every day going to the supermarket is to meet people and talk to people. So that's part of their day. So losing a bus service if you're in a rural area can overnight wipe out your social connections. I think it's it's hugely valuable. And of course, it's a complicated issue because there are other people who internet shopping could be a great thing if you've got a full and active life and you want the time to do those things and you're not that interested in how you shop and it's a convenient way to do it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's wrong. Mm. It's just not right for everyone. Yeah, exactly. I think also in the Silver Line, we, we try and target... What's the target? It's the wrong word, but we want to support the most lonely and isolated older people. And uh, the easy thing to do would be going to go to the community centre and put a poster up to say here's the silver line, here's the number. But by doing that, you're reaching the people in the community centre who by nature of that may not be the most isolated. So the way we would try it and, and, and find those people is thinking about people who have carers coming in, maybe have their meals delivered every day, maybe have a medical pharm- pharmacy delivery and putting our leaflets out through those mediums as well so that the people who are not coming out of their homes are reached I mentioned some of the statistics Mm. in my introduction that loneliness, it's clearly a growing problem, can increase premature death rates by up to 30%, that Mm. loneliness can be more harmful than smoking Mm. cigarettes, which Mm. almost feels unbelievable Mm. to me. We all know smoking cigarettes Mm. is is Mm -hmm. extremely bad for you and ridiculous Mm. to do. But can loneliness be quantified in that sort of fashion? It can, and I think... um it starts off with a loss of self-confidence and that that's not something that hope happens overnight. A lot of people we support say, I don't know how this happened. I don't know how I haven't been out for a month. I, you know, I can't define when this happened to me, but I've stopped going out. I've lost my confidence. I don't want to go out anymore. And as you say, it's, it's likened to, to smoking cigarettes, but that's really because that lack of confidence and that social isolation then leads on to other health conditions, really. And, and it is dangerous in terms of higher blood pressure, depression and other health conditions which, as you say, can mean premature death. So you're here in California. Mm-hmm. You've been talking to the audience of TED Med. Mm-hmm. And I know you speak at other events. What sort of 
reception do you get? Because I think a lot of people, this kind of audience, they know the problem mm. exists, but mm -hmm. maybe not quite to the extent that, that you talk about it. Mm. Is there a willingness, do you see, in society to do something about this? I mean, definitely. Since, since I've talked at TED Med, I've been approached numerous times by people saying, can we set up Silverline in the US and how do we do it, etc., etc. And And my message is it's, it's actually quite simple in terms of the Silverline is not a complicated model. It's about people looking out for each other essentially and providing that 24-7 support so as I say it's not complicated it's, it's simple human connection it's interesting talking at a conference with a whole host of medical professionals to stand up and say actually this isn't about medical professionals it's about people with life experience being alongside others and I think there's a place for the medical professionals but actually it's about empathy and my support I had from Samaritans was about volunteers who weren't medically trained who empathise with me so uh any one of us can help someone else. You don't have to have a, a doctorate to go and do that. I think it's a good message. Just talking about your own life, and I've, I've kind of touched on this, but as you look forward now, clearly in a much more optimistic frame of mind than perhaps you once were, do you have goals for yourself as far as your longevity is concerned? No, not really. I've not <laughs> never really had goals Um Never really planned Bills things. or aspirations? Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, be, it, it would be great if, if the Silverline concept could be could be rolled out. Yeah, I guess I've not, I've not really. I, when I look back, I, you know, I, I would never have dreamed I would end up... If, well, I wouldn't have dreamed I'd be alive, let's face it. Um, so I've got past that first goal that I've, I've got through my teenage years. I've got into adulthood. I've caught up on some education. I haven't done everything I would like to do, but I'm sort of a, at peace with what I've done so far and I'm... Let's see what the next chapter holds. I'm just wondering whether your experience makes you more inclined to appreciate the here and now mm. than perhaps to worry about what's going to happen in or, or even hypothesise about what's going to happen in 10, 20 years' yeah. time. I think that yeah. today is perhaps more important. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think I'm definitely a here and now person. Uh, probably irritatingly so for those around me who might who might like me to plan ahead a bit further. But no, I think I, I do try and make make the most of the moment and coming over to the US to, to talk at TED Med huge it's been great to come over and do that so living in the moment in the US at the moment <laughs> do, you, do you travel much? Um, not, not particularly no not, I mean not internationally I, I travel throughout the UK but not internationally what do you make of it here California oh it's fantastic the people yeah. and the attitude and yeah I mean it's a very can do attitude isn't it so um, which is great and people have been really warm to me people have um, hearing my story I've, I've had a really brilliant reception from, from the people at said med conference I wish I could stay here longer um, and, and see the scenery but no it's fantastic well Sophie Andrews thank you for telling your story I, I really appreciate it and all the best with everything you're doing thank you if you'd like more information about Sophie's work, there's a link to The Silver Line on the show notes page for this episode. You'll find them at Live Long and Master Aging, our website, llamapodcast.com. That's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. If you'd like to get in touch or just follow what we do in social media, we're at Llama Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. 
the infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. Flexby, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a Flexbeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.